As a thankful recipient of many, many skincare products over the years, I've learned to discern what is naturally actually activating my skin to rebalance and recalibrate on its own. That's what your skin is meant to be doing, and it keeps getting disrupted by all these choices that we make. So, when the founder and creator of Herbal Face Food reached out to me, I was all ears. I didn't know why at first. It turns out that Herbal Face Food is the most potent antioxidant skincare line on the market today, period. The raw plant ingredients in each of their products are never processed, never manipulated with synthetics or emulsifiers. These anti-aging botanicals are combined with the most precious plant concentrates, and they have changed my skin. Here's how. I'm going to talk about two of the products, the Herbal Face Food Serums and the Cream. The serums contain powerful phytoenzymes and antioxidants. These are activated and infused into your tissues. They hydrate and increase the resiliency of your skin, and they feel like they're plumping up your face. I use Serum 1 daily. I use Serum 2 when I'm tired and I need extra firming for my skin. And I use the X, which is also known as the Cure, for a small patch of rosacea that flares up every now and again, which you cannot see because of these products. When you feed your skin with herbal face food, you will feel real live ingredients at work. An activating flush, an invigorating tingle, some warmth, all of these are evidence of your skin healing at the cellular level and years of damage reversing. The cream is the most potent moisturizer I've ever tried, and I've tried them all. I live in the high desert. This cream contains 102 of the world's most powerful anti-aging botanicals and is also the world's first and only edible SPF <laughs> with a protection rating of SPF 50+. Plus. And this is accomplished 100% by plant power. And you can expect intense hydration, soothing for your tired skin. You can expect to see inflammation calmed and rebuilding of elasticity so your complexion looks and feels more smooth, and more radiant. Herbal face food is not plant-based. It's plant-powered. It has the highest rating on the ORAC anti-aging scale. ORAC means oxygen radical absorbance capacity. I never knew what that meant before. Highest, over 30 million on that scale. By contrast, vitamin C in skincare rates under 100,000. Herbal face food is using all post-consumer recycled materials and packaging. They use glass and aluminum, which is super easy to recycle as well. The products and packaging are 99% free of plastics. They contain no ingredients that involve the destruction or harm of any plant, animal, or marine life. These are 100% plants only, these products. These active concentrates are coming from the seeds, the fruits, the leaves, or the flowers of the plants only. These products have been a complete revolution for me. I know that you will love the way your skin looks and feels after using it even for just a day or two. And the best part is that Herbal Face Food has offered us, you, my community, a code to receive 20% off forever, ever. The code is capital E-L-E-N-A 20. Once again, that's my name in all caps, ELENA2020. The site is herbalfacefood.com. The code is all caps ELENA20. It's not just your first purchase, it's any purchase. You will love these products, and I am so grateful, Herbal Face Food, for the change that you have made in my life. Thank you. Welcome to the Practice You podcast. My name is Elena Brower. Together, we'll explore and enjoy content and conversations around mastering transitions. In our relations, our wellness, our careers, our families, and especially in our missions and visions. You are invited to learn and love and listen with me. Welcome to Practice You. Welcome back to the podcast. I have with me today an old friend from New York, somebody with whom I've practiced and, and hung out for, I don't know, 20 years. How long has it been? 
Yeah, about about that, 22. Something like that, crazy. Kimberly Ann Johnson, who has made quite the body of work and name for herself. Her most recent work is a book. It's called The Call of the Wild. And the subtitle is, it's not The Call, it's Call of the Wild. Subtitle is, How We Heal Trauma, Awaken Our Own Power, and Use It for Good. This is my current obsession to become trauma-informed, and I want to give you a little bit of background on Kimberly before we get going into a few questions. Obviously, Kimberly is the author of the, uh, the book Call of the Wild, but she's also the author of the early mothering classic, which you may have seen. It's called The Fourth Trimester, Healing Your Body, Balancing Your Emotions, and Restoring Your Vitality. It was published in seven languages around the world. She is a sought-after practitioner and lead authority in postpartum health. She's been working hands-on in integrative women's health and trauma recovery for over a decade. Her work has been featured in The Times and Forbes and Vogue and New York Magazine's The Cut, which is so cool. Harper's Bazaar, Today.com, many other news outlets, and then, of course, her newest book, which I've just mentioned. I want to start right at the beginning. How do we define trauma? Trauma is a big word. And the way that we work with it in somatic practice is not just the thing that happened, so not the event. It's why two people can go through the same thing and one come out of it with a lot of residue and a lot of syndromes and symptoms or flashbacks and the other not. So it's as much as what happened is what hasn't happened. And one other way you could look at it is there are cycles and circuitry inside of our nervous system. You could think of it as like a record going around on a record player. And a trauma is like a record skip. So our system skips at the same time every time we get to a similar situation or what we call an associative stack. So a series of associations that pings a certain pattern within our own nervous system. Mm. I'm on page 36 of Call of the Wild, and the, the title of this section is Toward a New Understanding of Trauma. And you start this section with, and I quote, I wish there was a better word for trauma. In the age of prescription syndromes and prognoses, labels are dangerous. We adhere to them, they become part of our reality, and they influence how we understand the world and ourselves. If we relate to trauma, we may become attached to it as an identity. You may hear someone say something like, I'm totally traumatized, and if we don't relate to it, we distance ourselves from it and moralize it, as if not being traumatized is a sign of strength. But, you go on, trauma is a normal part of life. We all have experiences that are beyond our capacity to handle in the moment. They are, quote-unquote, too much, too fast, too soon, or all of the above. And you continue with the fact that it's important to make the distinction between capital T traumas, rather, the big, shocking, life-threatening incidents, and the lowercase t traumas. We all have unprocessed material in our bodies that affects how we act and interact with the world. Trauma is not a scarlet letter. It is part of being human. Thankfully and redemptively, you finish this paragraph, healing is also an inherent part of being human. Regeneration and a forward thrust of life is operating in all of us right now. I truly appreciate this distinction, and I want my listener to really hear the difference between the capital T and the big T, because I think sometimes we conflate them and we switch them. Hmm. Uh, I myself have made little T's into big T's, and I've made the mistake of making big T's into little T's and thinking that, oh, it's fine, but actually it's not fine, and I need to get to know my body a little bit more, as you as you say on the next page, in fact in order to heal and, you know, sort of move forward past the big T's. Page 37, you say body first. To resolve trauma, we have to develop or deepen our relationship to our body. My listener, Kimberly, might be saying, as you purport in this paragraph, you know, I 
I'm pretty connected to my body. I do yoga. I go to the gym. I work out, whatever it is. So I don't think I could be more connected to my body. What would you say to somebody who feels that way? And how would you approach it in such a way that it would feel safe for them to hear you? That's a great question. I was really confused myself when I finally had a somatic therapy session. And after years of being in a dance studio and a yoga studio and feeling like I spent so much time in contact, not just with my physical body, but also with my breath and with energetics to find how challenging it was for me to just move into what in trauma language is called interoception or inside awareness. And, you know, arguably I'd been doing that in meditation practice, but in this other context, it was really hard for me. And I recognized that part of that was because in my spiritual practices, I was entering into a little bit of a freeze state and the freeze that was familiar to me from earlier life experiences was then replicated, but with a more positive spin to it. So it felt comfortable, but it was also still a freeziness. And so, you know, there's nothing there. First of all, if people are satisfied with how their practices and their life is organized for them and, and they feel like they're in a really good space, that's wonderful. And, you know, that's really we're not just scratching around in our entire life history, like trying to pick scabs off to hyper analyze ourselves or to contribute to an addiction to just continually trying to improve ourselves. So really what I'm trying to offer is that number one, if you feel that you've experienced trauma or there's confusing things in your life that the tools that you have aren't getting to, right? Like when I practiced yoga, I thought that the yoga was a complete toolbox and I could figure out I should just have a yoga tool to address anything. And what I really found was that this is a different kind of a toolbox or it has been for, for me in my life. And so number one is to have a lot of compassion that if your body's speaking loudly to you, whether that's you can't sleep or you can't go to the bathroom or you feel like you don't want to go out of your house or certain people make you feel really depressed or anxious, you have compassion for your own experience that you're not doing something wrong. Your physiology is trying to communicate something with you. And then the second thing was just an invitation to be a more careful listener to what your system is telling you rather than feeling like you should feel some other way. Because what happens is when we all want to feel better, we all want to let things go, we all want to get over things, we're all ready to not be triggered by our mom or want to have a great sexual encounter. It's not for lack of wanting, it's that there's something, there's still a record skip in there. And that record skip is the thing that prevents us from being fully available to what's happening in the present moment. So if somebody feels that that might be happening for them, then the tools in the book are just a deeper invitation for how to be a better translator of what our body and our physiology are trying to tell us rather than feeling like our body is an impediment to what we're trying, where we're trying to go. Like, ugh, if I just wasn't menstruating or if I just didn't have this ankle pain, then I would be able to do this other thing that there's, uh, not to hyper-specialize hyper it either and like pay attention to every little thing, right? We have to learn how to be a good interpreter and to know which signals to pick up on and which ones to let fade into the background. Right. Which is actually the perfect segue to my next question, chapter three. You write about how we can learn to listen to our bodies uh, and you offer several tools, several, let's say, channels through which the body speaks. Use the acronym TIMES, capital T-I-M-E-S. We're on page 55 if you have the book and you're listening to us. Thought, image, movement, emotion, sensation. And what's interesting is our listener, if you sit back for a moment, and I, I've spent some time with this, if you sit back and you think, okay, so how can I explore the channel of thought? Okay, that's kind of easy if 
you're somebody who really fights against your very overactive brain might not be so easy. Um, image also has to do with overactive brain. I feel movement, you know, if you're moving, cool. That's one way to explore how your body feels, but it might actually be gone off the edge and you actually use movement to escape. Emotion is the same. Sensation is the same. Um, Kimberly, I would love to hear from you about how you work with this, with your clients and students in your work to help them get more and more acclimated and familiar with the conversation, the dialogue with their bodies. This is one of my favorite tools in the book. And I think as a yoga teacher, I'm sure that right away you just kind of got it because if you're trying to teach someone how to do something that they like to, to gain a skill, like say you're trying to teach somebody how to do a handstand or how to, how to elaborate their downward facing dog. Maybe you can tell them through words and those words can convey imagery. Those words can convey directions of movement, how bones work, the placement of the physical body. You could imagine something, right? You could say like, call forth that might still be like imagery but it could be an emotion or notice if this thing provokes any emotion and then sensation it's like what are you sensing moment to moment in this so this is a way to filter our own inner experience most of us are in the thinking mind a lot of the time and we communicate our words communicate our thoughts in general because especially in english we really are like word thought communicators. I like to call the sensations like the poetry of the body. So every one of these channels is completely necessary. Every one of them, each of us is going to have what I call a home channel and then a default channel. So you're going to have the channel that like really comes to you. Like for me, that feels like movement. It's like if I just even for a second disengage my thought stream and I want to communicate something, movement would be, dance would be a way that I could communicate or express something. For some people, they're like, oh, I'm totally a visual person. Like it's imagery for me. That's how I communicate in metaphor. That's how I encounter the world is through the sensory images, taste, smell, sound, etc. Some cultures are really sensation-based and it would be normal for you to say, oh, how are you doing today? And they might say, my heart feels heavy, like there's something sitting on my chest. Or I can feel like a sense of lightness in my legs or something. They would report to you a sensation. So you can learn, like for me, I don't tend to be an image person. So if an image is, arises within me, it's usually really important. Archetypes are kinds of images. So we know that if somebody, um, we're talking to them and we start to see them kind of get into a spiral, we might offer them an archetype or an image so that it distracts that level of intensity and maybe gives them a deeper layer of understanding. And we can do this within ourselves or we can do it in conversation or we can do it, you know, one to many, but it's very helpful in intimacy and sexual interactions to just know where you are. A lot of times people are like, Oh, I just feel so disconnected. And it's because one person is really deep in sensation channel and the other person is really deep in emotion channel and they're just not synced up. And it's not that they don't care about each other or that they each aren't desiring connection. It's just that they're either habituated to those channels or those are the ones that they like to be in. But if you can just name it, then you can at least know and be oriented to where the other person is and decide if you want to meet them or decide if you want to stay where you are. So I think the book is worth just that chapter because so much of the time, we are moving through the world thinking that we're responding to one thing and what we're really doing is responding to a cascade of associations that we're not even realizing we are and the situation you know you and i are talking on september 17th 2021 the situation we find ourselves in right now with vaccines and the pandemic it's a perfect example of overcoupling where we think we're talking about the vaccine but what we're really talking about is medical racism our personal trauma history, our relationship with vaccines in general, 
power structures and authority, our thoughts about nature and technology, our life history, and yet we think we're just talking about this one thing. And so preach when we can um, uncouple this, we can start to actually have connection rather than just our activation and our opinions and our charge hitting into each other, becoming like a rantathon within our echo chamber based on those unconscious associations. My lady, <laughs> let me just pause for a second and say that that's probably the most uh, well-articulated explanation of the, of the drama in which we find ourselves right now. Because indeed, I just want to highlight that for a second. It isn't what we think it is. It's not just one conversation. It's so many things. And they're so deeply personal. And it can't be in some public forum. Mm. And I think one of the main things that, that you just said is that we're all on different channels. I, I really appreciate that, especially in the relationship realm. One of us is in emotion and one of us is in image or one of us is in sensation and one of us is in thought. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and as you said, to name it, I think the most important thing that I've learned now that I'm almost 51 here and I've been in a relationship, a really healthy relationship for the last eight years is we just have to talk yeah, a little bit, not even a long time and make sure that like, okay, this is where I'm at right now and where are you at mm -hmm. and then we can find each other wherever it is and it gets really funny and sexy quickly mm -hmm. and it's funny because I think it can sound really just sterile and boring like oh I'm gonna like sit here and tell you like what my thought is or what my emotion is but actually you know the first chapters of the book are about orientation which to me is like especially as a spiritual practitioner, huge game changer, because I spent so much time on a mat focused in with Drishti, with, you know, the very contained space and thinking that the microcosm is always a representation of the macrocosm. And really the base level regulation of my nervous system came when I learned how to alternate between external world and internal world. But another form of orientation is naming what it is that's happening. And sometimes that is just, I don't know what channel I'm in. I'm so overwhelmed. But at least saying that you're overwhelmed is a step of coming out of overwhelm, right? Because you're it also mobilizing. Brings you together. Right. And then the other person's not guessing and they're not right. making a story up about it that somehow it's about them. But even being able to do that is coming out, of, is differentiation. It's coming out of the amalgamation that is the relationship and back into yourself. And so that's another inner outer of like, I can just say, Hey, I feel this way, but I'm not blaming the other person for it. I'm not saying it's because of you. I'm just, and that's why a lot of these conversations happen really well when you're not facing the person, like when you're driving or when you're shoulder to shoulder, because you're looking out on the common horizon. And then it's mm. like, in Portuguese, there's a word third. It's like third party, but not in the bad kind of way. It's like you're looking ahead. You're not facing each other because there's just so much intensity eye to eye. So I think just having conversations within relationship or within our communities where we can take responsibility for our own level of activation and it doesn't mean you have to manage it. It doesn't mean you have to be less angry about it. It doesn't have to mean you have to care less about things. But when you know that it's coming from within your own system, then you really, you're, you're a step in the direction of understanding, for instance, that the information you're retrieving is most likely matching your level of intensity and activation. And that's the danger of social media is that then you just find more and more and more evidence to support your level of activation. It's why some right. people are addicted to watching things like special victims unit. Like some people are like, oh yeah, I watched that to go to sleep. Okay, well that's telling you that your nervous system runs at a really high level of sympathetic activation under threat and you need something to match that to deactivate you. So 
the level of activation and it's also a reason to have a lot of compassion for ourselves but also a, a fair amount of discernment to just keep remembering that now you and i are talking september 17th it's been 18 months of a pandemic and we don't know how long it's going to last but it's lasted way longer than that any one of us thought like i remember at the beginning yeah. thinking like oh yeah six weeks six or 12 weeks, weeks. right and then yeah. it was like I was writing my book and I was saying things like we're halfway through and, and then somebody would be like, well, how do you know we're halfway through? And I'm like, I don't like, I just somehow kind of thought that. So it's, we have to recognize that that amount of stress and changing lives and migratory patterns and deaths and fears and disagreements and arguments and tension all of us are carrying more activation. It doesn't, you could be the, the most enlightened person on the planet, but if you are in a human body, we are echolocators. We can feel the other members of our species and other species around us. So knowing that it's just, you know, I, we're so, we're also hard on ourselves and it's really important to keep remembering, oh yeah, I'm exhausted. Yes. And part of it is because this is an exhausting time. It's not because it's a me problem or, oh, I'm so angry about this. Yeah, maybe it's best that I don't just knee jerk respond on social media, which seems to be a popular thing to do because there's not too much consequence for just like fire hosing your moral outrage all over other people's feeds that we might find another way. And so if you were to use times, thought, image, movement, emotion, sensation, then I would say, okay, how does that anger move? Why don't you put on some, some music with like strong percussion and see if you can move some of that and then see after you move with it, what would your action be? That's really well said. I, I'm finding also that when you mentioned the archetype aspect, mm. I sort of want to go down that road, but I don't want to lose track of this. The archetype aspect is really important in Call of the Wild. And we talk, we, you talk about in this book, we, because I've been thinking about it so much lately about the difference between a, a predator and mm. a quote unquote victim. You talk a lot about this, and I feel like it has completely shifted. Uh, so much of how I think and operate in the smallest moments in my household, in my relationship with James. Can you talk a little bit about how this came to be in your understanding, the shift from sort of victim to predator, and why that can be so deeply empowering and change things for the much better in many relations? Yes. So when I'm talking about predator, I usually talk about predator and prey just so that it's in animal language because victim already starts to sound like it's, there's like a, a moral judgment. And some people might have, well, uh, some people definitely have a moral judgment about the word predator because none of us, the way that we use it in our culture, none of us would want to be associated with a predator. And those of us who have been prey especially don't want to be associated with a predator because we would never want to harm someone in the way that we've been harmed. I think the best illustration of this is, do I have time to tell a little story? Yes, of course. Of course, of course you have time to tell a story. Okay. So when I was in somatic experiencing trauma school is what I call it, we were watching videos of predators and prey, not a lot of them, but a few of them and we were watching a wolf and a rabbit. The lights were off, you know, we're watching it on a, on a screen. And the whole time that the wolf noticed the rabbit and the wolf started coming closer to the rabbit and the wolf was grinding its teeth and I'm watching the rabbit and the rabbit's, you know, chewing its, the grass and then it stops and it knows the wolf is coming. The whole time, all I could just think of was like, oh my God, rabbit, like, can't you feel it? Like, get away. What are you doing? Like, don't oh, run away. Like, and then knowing, okay, here comes a wolf. Like the rabbit can't get away now. And I was just so anxious and so feeling the rabbit. 
and the rabbit played dead and the wolf came and picked it up and shook it around and it believed it was dead and predators don't want dead prey. So it threw the rabbit off and then the wolf ran off. And then we watched the rabbit and the rabbit come to out of that paralysis and then shake it off. And when the lights came up in the classroom, the teacher said, who here identifies with the wolf? At that moment, I thought, that is an insane question. And then 30% of the people's hands went up. And these are people that I liked and that were students and that I'd already had years of school with. And so I couldn't just be like, oh, these are jerks. These people are total jerks. And that moment, I had an aha moment of, wow, I'm not even on a scale between where my system is identifying, I am a hundred percent with that rabbit. And in that moment, I just had a cascade of realizations. Oh, that's why I became a vegetarian when I was 13. Oh, that's, that's what happened when I was bullied in this situation. Oh, this is what happened. No wonder I chose this kind of practice. I was used to being in that kind of free state. And so of course these practices were easier for me. So that was that aha. And then as I said, like these other people, I would have never been able to predict who related more with the wolf. So that just made me curious, like, what would that be like for me if I related more to the wolf, knowing, you know, from yoga principles that sometimes the thing that's so foreign to you is perhaps something that could be helpful. Then I was in a somatic experiencing session as a client. I was there talking about my five-year-old daughter I had gone on a trip with her. A friend of mine took me aside after the trip and said, your daughter's becoming really authoritarian and you need to get a handle on this. And if you don't get a handle on this, you're going to have like a nightmare teenager. Of course, I did not take that well at all. I felt very mad at my friend. I felt super confused because she was also somebody who I trusted a lot. So I knew she was probably right, but I was horrified. So I took that situation to my SE therapist at the time, somatic experiencing. And I was feeling sorry for myself. And I was telling him, you know, I'm a single mom and I'm everything. I have to be the unconditional love. I have to be the disciplined father. And I was really seeing it as like, I have to be everything. I have to be the breadwinner and the strict one. And then I have to be the comforting one. And he just looked at me and he said, and I lived in Brazil at the time, and he said, do you know that I'm from the Amazon? And I said, no. And he said, you're a jaguar. And did you know, and he, at the time he was saying, you know, look at you, you have this golden skin and you're spotted because I have freckles. And he said, it's the female that teaches the cubs to hunt. Ooh. Oh, wow. Wow. So in that moment, he fractured that duality that I had created for myself. And then he just said, go home and watch videos of mother jaguars with their cubs and start playing with that with your daughter. So I did. And I started um, watching how the cubs bat, how the mother Onsa bats her cubs around and lays on top of them. And I would just imitate that. And I found that my daughter really loved it. And she loved it when I would basically dominate her and when I would pin her. And of course, I wasn't doing anything violent, but I was using a fair amount of force and then letting her push back against my force and then showing her, like I used to say in Portuguese, the words are diminutive. So onça and oncinha. So it's like, I'm the, I'm the adult, you're the child kind of thing. I'm the jaguar and you're the cub. And I, and when I wasn't physically doing it, I would say to her, like, who is the onsa? Like, who's the jaguar here? And so it really, really helped. Wow, dude. Wow. Yeah. And then from there, uh, just to bring it full circle, I started working with women specifically and women who had different kinds of traumas from giving birth or from losses, miscarriages, gynecological surgeries, medical stuff. And I had someone come to my office and she, she looked like she was incognito. So I live in Southern California. That's where I was at the time. 
she came in in like lots of layers, sunglasses, a hat. And she was coming in because after her third childbirth, she found herself incredibly energetically sensitive, so much so that she wasn't wanting to go out of the house, so much so she wasn't wanting to sleep in the same bed with her husband. And just super confused because she's like, I don't really have any reason to feel these ways, but I do and I don't know what to do. So I said, okay, how about you be the wolf and I'll be the rabbit? Because she was in rabbit mode. She was fully hidden and hiding. Right, right, right. But when I said that, just the word, how about you be the wolf, she went into a full freeze. She cowered down and she got stuck mm. in a physical position of submission. And she just was like, I don't know what's happening. I don't know why I'm doing this. And I said, it's okay. You know, and I was in the same space with her. So I could help her and let her have the time for her freeze and then slowly let that thaw out. And that just gave me another aha that it was like, oh, it's not that women don't want to be able to occupy the predator energy. It's that they don't actually know how. And what is the predator energy? It's hunting. It's knowing what you want, having focus, maintaining that drive and getting to what you want. But the thing about it is people associate that as like, oh, well, that's dangerous. No, it's not dangerous unless it needs to be. It's decisive. And jaguars don't go around hunting all the time. In the wild, predators aren't the, the wolf that destroys a hen house is a wolf that's feral. It's too close to, to domesticity, right? Because the hen house is a human creation. But in the actual wild, right. wolves don't kill more than they need. They kill what they need to eat or a jaguar. It takes what it needs to eat. The rest of the time, it hangs out with its cubs. It chills, it naps, it saunters along the plains. And that's what the promise of being able to activate this, what I call activating your inner jaguar in our nervous systems is that instead of going around on high alert, instead of feeling that we're constantly wondering if our self-protective gestures are going to kick in, we can actually relax because we have a felt sense that if we needed the ferocity, if we needed to summon that energy, that it's available for us. And energy meaning that se sequence of patterns, muscular, fascial, and energetic that come together in order for us to protect ourselves. Hmm. or to, to get what we want. Right. There are so many things going through my head right now, but most notably is the part where you actually made a clear boundary for your kid. I remember reading something like this. It wasn't obviously this book, because the book wasn't written, but there was something in, I want to say it was in some piece of literature about working with kids with attention deficit, which after speaking to Dr. Gabor Mate, that's a construct for kids who are suffering from habitual numbing out from whatever they're experiencing in their home. More on that another time. However, to put yourself in physical contact with your kid and to even, you know, lay on top of them and give them the sort of animal vibration that you were just referencing. I use that. I use that as soon as I learned about it. I think Jonah was probably six, seven, eight. And I started to really show up in a totally different way. I, I didn't have this language for it. I wish I had. So if you're a parent of a young kid and you're listening to this, seriously, put your attention here and get this book because it's gold medicine for your parenting. He instantly relaxed in the face of good boundaries. Yes. In the face of, you know, physical wolf-like, jaguar-like, you know, I'm the boss. And you're here, you're heard, you're safe, you're seen, you're, you're needed, but you're not the boss. Yes. Uh, it was the best, best pivot, I think, of his whole upbringing. And I, I am really happy to have words for it now. So thank you for that. Mm. Yeah, that's beautiful. And I think it speaks to our, again, this verbal culture that we have, and especially as spiritual practitioners, like wanting to be nonviolent, wanting to be compassionate. And those are both things that I definitely do want to be and, and sure. feel that I am. But it's really fear. It's the ferocity that can be so um, 
it can take a lot of energy. I mean, at the time, that's how I experienced it is like, God, it just takes so much energy to ramp up this level of physicality. But it speaks also to living in a touch starved culture. You know, as babies, we have these other channels available to us. I don't know about thoughts for babies, but you know, they don't have words yet. So the way that they are interpreting life in the world is through touch, is through sensation, is through emotion. And so they're all innate languages inside of us. But Hmm. what we do with our children is that we talk to them and we explain everything to them. And we think that explaining them to them would necessitate a behavior change. But in fact, it's really until about six years old that rationality works that well. Now, there's other reasons why we might use words that are really effective. But in general, less words and more contact in a deliberate way can be very powerful and helpful and also save a lot of energy over time. I mean, I was talking to my daughter in so many different ways and I would bulge my eyes out at her and I would project my head forward. Same. Oh, same. Until it was like, okay, this kind of power is not helping. So what happens if I bring it down to all fours? What happens if, you know, I just embody this something that's non-negotiable, right? We see so much negotiating and the negotiation is so exhausting for everybody. And it's asking for a deeper level of organization. So that organization is when the words you're saying, the tone of your voice, your physical posture and your facial expressions are all communicating the exact same thing. That's when we believe someone. That's when we get our point across. Okay. Does violence happen? Yes. You know, there's definitely, you know, things that happen that are just out of nowhere that we have nothing to do with. But in general, let's say 85, 90% of our interactions, the reason why someone is responding to us is because they're responding to a nervous system cue. We may think, well, I said this so many times, but maybe you said it and you said it in like a really high tone. Or maybe you said it and your entire body looked like a rabbit, but your words were trying to be a wolf. Your entire body has to be in in congruence for the other person to, I don't want to say take it seriously, but to receive the full message of what you're trying to communicate. I can tell you for sure, last point on this topic before we move on to sort of close. I had all those parts of me in differing states when I would try, quote unquote, try to discipline my kid with the head forward and the bulging eyes and so forth. It was very much this sort of nebulous, thought-based kind of bullshit. And then no action would come forward. My body wouldn't say what my mouth was saying or my eyes were saying. So I'm really drinking this in. And I appreciate that explanation so much. Page 132, really starting on 131, you talk about closing the loop and you talk about how, uh, to paraphrase, trauma repair offers us the opportunity to finish sort of unfinished cycles. And you say, um, the top of page 132, in the very first paragraph, you say, I'll be honest, it's the fifth line down. This is one of the most controversial parts of this book. And why it comes now after you've created a foundation of orienting to the environment and coming home to yourself. Many therapists would balk at the prospect of someone trying to do trauma repair on their own without the support of a skilled professional. Optimally, of course, we would all have access to skilled somatic professionals. And of course, at the end of the book, you find resources to help you find that support as well. In an ideal world, you say, we would also have collective spaces of ritual that would encourage us to process this material in a safe community forum. But one thing that you learned, you say, from the Me Too movement was that the sheer volume of nervous system repair that's needed is massive, as you say. And you go on, I believe we have to attempt that reparative work from as many angles as we can. 
I've also been thrilled to witness my students, both in person and online, supersede my expectations for what I thought was possible in a group or a virtual setting. The healing my students experienced gave me confidence that many women are ready and capable, and I'll include men here too, of making these repairs with the right tools and guidance that have been usually reserved in the domain of professionals. Remember these principles as we move forward. If you are starting to feel overwhelmed or a level of emotional reaction or activation that's not manageable, orient to the present moment environment. And this is what we talked about between page 55 and 132. Titration is key, you say. So you're such a smart girl. Take the bite you can digest. You can pause or stop at any time. Nothing is mandatory to do now or is so urgent that you can't take the steps you need to be okay. You go on, on page 133, to walk through a healing session in the book. I'm so impressed. It's so effective and so good. You, you take us in very slowly to one moment, and you walk us through what it would look like and feel like to gently free ourselves. And I will never stop thanking you for this, because I, I, I have you here, because I think this is an incredibly important book for any of us who have endured, period. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah. How do we know when we have an unfinished cycle? How do we know um, when we can step into page 133 and start this process for ourselves? That's a good question. I guess most people I know, they already know that, and they're just searching for what might help. You know, if you find yourself behaving the same way again and again, and then feeling bad afterwards, that could give you one clue. Um, if you find yourself with the same kind of illness, you know, repeating over and over again, and you feel like you've tried other things, you've tried changing your diet, you know, yeast infections are a really good example of that, or bacterial vaginosis is like, you've tried everything. You've tried all the natural remedies. You've tried all the allopathic remedies and yet it persists. Usually the body's offering you another chance at reorganization. And oftentimes it's our body's creating a boundary for us that we can't create for ourselves. Oh, wow. That's deep. Oh, that's so deep. Wow. Specifically this a boundary that we can't create for ourselves. Say more, just a little bit more about this, because any woman listening is going to be curious about this, particularly if she is suffering from this. And we all have friends who suffer from it chronically, of course. Right. And it could be anything. It could be pain during sex. It could be, you know, it, it could even be like an energetic thing where like every time you start to get aroused, then some other flips, switch, switch flips and you find yourself in an emotional state and it keeps happening repetitively. As far as like pelvic pain, you know, a lot of times we have either earlier sexual boundary violations or experiences. We have gynecological procedures, surgeries. You know, I tell a story in the book of a woman who came to me and she had had an IUD put in that she really wanted. And she was felt supported in that procedure. And, um, you know, her partner was on board and it seemed in her mind, like everything was fine. And then six months later, she's having painful sex. She's gotten the IUD taken out because she thinks maybe that was it. And when we were in session, what happened was her knee kept calling her attention. And that took her back to a knee surgery that she'd had and been completely dismissed by her male surgeon. And had changed her life. She was a basketball player before that, and she couldn't play basketball anymore because her knee was actually never really better. So that's what her body brought. And it's just so often that, you know, I worked with a few people recently who had um, chosen to get abortions that they wanted, that they felt good about, that they felt they would still make but as a result, they were having really a lot of difficulty with intimacy and that was, it was painful. And a lot of the pain was that they, the pace of intimacy that they used to have 
wasn't what they really wanted, but they felt they guilty about and some level of grief about. And until we could really sit with the grief that was confusing because they were like, why am I grieving if this was something that I wanted? Sitting with that the body was actually just asking for more time and that in one of the cases, it had happened really suddenly. So right when the person found out she was pregnant, right away she made the choice, right away she went by herself to get the procedure. And it was just a too much, too fast, too soon, even though rationally it's what she wanted. And these are unique, these experiences, many of them are unique to female bodies because we have more cycles. And so female bodies have more chances at cycle interruption. Good news, we also have more chances at cycle completion, but it's very particular because there's just so many ways that we interface with authority, whether that's doctors, whether that's spiritual teachers, whether that's bosses. And, you know, this would take us in a whole other direction, but power just really influences how we behave in our nervous systems. So Oftentimes when we don't feel the inner centering or power to reckon with that external power, then our body does it for us. And we can just say like, well, I'm tired or my pelvis hurts. It hurts every time rather than having to say, you know, I actually don't like this situation or I don't want the sex we used to have. I want a new kind (sighs) of sex. This isn't working for me. Um, That conversation isn't fully formed and so the body's holding on to what it can't say or it couldn't say. Wow. This is deep, girl. Though because there are I'm sure there is at least one human listening to this who can identify. I know I can identify and I can say that that whole conversation has shifted and it and it continues to shift all the time. And what's interesting is we have to be skillful in how we talk about this with our partners as women because Our partners, you know, most men anyway, let me say that I'm generalizing and give you the caveat, would just be fine going on doing it the way it was always done or the way they've imagined or fantasized it could be. And the fact is we do change. Our bodies do change. We need different levels of connection, different types. I really appreciate that you've just said this because it does open up another conversation for another day which I think is very important. And I think if you're listening to us right now, don't be afraid to talk to your partner and say, if this is resonating and say, you know, my body's changing. And the way that I'm interfacing with you uh, has to change. And I would love to talk to you about what feels sexy to me now, or what feels romantic or what feels connected or intimate to me now. And let's see if we can meet. And even if you don't know, because a lot of people as women, we're socialized, most of us, to know what we don't want or know when we need to make a barrier, but not to know what we do want. And so even if you don't know, it's okay to just say, I feel different and I don't know what to do about it. Here's how I feel. What do you think? You know, what are you, what, how are you perceiving this? And to come up with some things to explore together. And also to remember that this doesn't have to be a change for the worse, that it can actually be something better. And while your partner, if it's a a male that is satisfied with how things are, even so that there is an opportunity for maturation and that there might be grief in, in not in the different form than it was before, but that we're also gonna gain something because we're gonna gain something that's more true to the truth of the moment. And the fact of the matter is, is that dicks aren't, you know, dicks lose their (laughs) hardness all the time as we get older, right? Like there, it's not like we're going to have a hard dick for the rest of our lives too. So it's not like, oh, I'm the woman, therefore I'm problematic because my body changes Mm -hmm. all the time and I can't perform in the way and show up for you like I did 20 years ago. I'm so sorry. It's like, no, I am a woman and I am changing. And in these changes, here's what I can show up for. And are you available for the power in that? Because there is a lot of power that's available when we fully, it's orientation, right? It comes back to like, we got to update. Like I'm that, that, 
three year ago me or what we were then, it's just not where I'm at. And I don't know, we have to discover where we're at. There's so much potential there. Wow, dude. This is a whole nother conversation. I can't even thank you enough because it, it really did. That really helps me to understand the gains I've made in my relationship. Thank you. Thank you. Mm. There are conversations that, that can be had to close this for our listener that will bring you great pleasure, great intimacy into your relationship. And it will help your partner feel like they know you better and they're able to bring you pleasure more appropriately and more, more, um, how shall I say this? Accurately, <laughs> weirdly. Yeah. And the, the amazing thing too, is that within the nervous system, as we, as we flow through different phases and cycles and life stages and all of the things, deaths and births and confusions and disorientations and feeling completely on purpose, all those things show up in our intimacy and it can be like the great alchemizer, right? It can be this space where of a lot of discovery and a lot of potential for those other things. So I hope that people feel inspired because I think that there is something very special about arousal space, even if that's just with yourself, uh, that has a potential to be that activation energy that can transform something uh, so that you feel more yourself, you feel more comfortable in your own skin. And when we occupy those sides of our nervous system, predator and prey within intimacy, there's a lot of space for that with play and improvisation. Yeah. Uh, where that comes to the surface. And you may find yourselves at different times in your life being like, well, I'm not available sexually because I don't want that. But what could be 5% off that that does seem interesting? Mm. And there you find a new doorway or a new key to some of this repair that happens on its own. So it's not like this drag that you have to do. It's like, oh, this is actually like I called positive reparative experience. Like this in and of itself is repairing that other thing without having to talk about that thing tons of times or without having to do the session on that thing. It's like, no, right now I can predator energy to me looks like my partner lays down and he can't move while I'm touching That's him. Cool, yeah. And, you know, within agreement. Sure, sure. It doesn't mean, I think people have this idea that it's like, you know, you put on your like sexiest dress and high heels and then, you know, crawl totally. around like a jaguar. Like you could do that, but it's also so much subtler yeah, than that. Yeah, it's archetypal. It's really mm. good. It, and it perfectly leads into my very last question. We're on page 101 for our listener. It's the close of a, of a chapter. And in this last paragraph, you say, we need a reference point and a foothold in our body and specifically what feels good in our body. Pleasure has to be part of the journey, not just the imagined destination. Pleasure is out there waiting to be discovered. Pleasure is in here waiting to be discovered right now and along the way. So experiment with saying I'm here and I'm alive. I'm here and I'm alive. We're here and we're alive. You also say we cannot heal trauma without the ability to feel pleasure. And I've seen in my life and in recent weeks, a lot of folks trying to heal trauma in a pleasureless place, in a pleasureless state. And I really appreciated that you said this, and I would love to hear you speak more on this, that we cannot heal trauma without the ability to feel pleasure. This is one of the hardest questions because it's also one of the hardest cells, especially in a time of great inequity and the exposure of so many systemic injustices and planetary injustices and reckonings, that it's, it's really hard to argue for pleasure. So what I'm talking about in pleasure is an ability to connect with something that feels good. 
Uh, this can also be really challenging and was for me after years of spiritual practice of developing equanimity and not really feeling lots of different things, but never labeling them pleasurable or not pleasurable. I actually had to relearn how to decide if I thought something was pleasurable or not. Simply meaning, I feel something in my body right now. I feel warm on my back. And then do I like that or do I not like that? And in this moment, I like that. And sometimes when you start this, you feel something and our, our mind and awareness is just going to take us to discomfort, pain, discomfort, pain, discomfort, pain. And we have to really get so curious about is there even a little bit of something that feels good? And if there's not, is there something that feels just a little less bad? The only way that we can start to attend to these record skips, to these patterns in our system that are relentless, that are frustrating, that um, sometimes are embarrassing, humiliating, that we would just really rather not deal with most of the time, is to get to zoom out and to be able to see the backdrop out of which that foregrounded experience comes. And when we can start to, to in order to pendulate to what does not feel good, we have to be able to pendulate out of that to something that does feel good. And what that specifically also can mean is in your particular situation, like if you had a birth, um, when you gave birth, if you've ever done that, if some something went wrong and it was, you feel like you just are stuck back there somehow, or you think maybe that has something to do with how your relationship or sexuality has changed after that time, that in that circumstance, was there anyone that was on your side? Was there a nice nurse? Was the sun outside your window something that you kept looking at? In every situation within our lives that happens to be one of those record skips in our system, there's some resource there. So pleasure can be a really triggering word for some people, you know, in our Protestant puritanical overculture inheritance. It's the thing that we're supposed to work hard to get. And what I'm talking about is really just that elemental connection with being alive and how much more is working so that we could even be listening to this together and in this conversation together to arrive at this moment. There are so many more things that are working correctly inside your body to organize without us even having to think about them to be able to be here right now. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm so thankful, Kimberly. What a, what a woman you are and what a brain, what a heart, what a full picture you've given us on the potential for healing for all of us, no matter what this applies to all of us. So I'm just so grateful. I don't have other words aside from thank you tremendously for, for all of us listening whenever we listen. And I look forward to more with you. And I, I do feel that there is going to be more on the horizon for the two of us. Thank you so much. You're a great interviewer. And thank you for engaging with the book so much. Oh, my God. It's so good. I can't even stand it. I'm putting it onto my bookshop list right now. I'm so excited. <laughs> Thank you again for being here, and to our listener, thank you for sticking around, and thank you for your presence and your willingness. Thank you, AG1, for sponsoring the Practice You podcast. My listener, you've been hearing me talk about AG1 for some time. I think I've been taking it daily for almost three years. 
75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens in one scoop in the morning. The best way to start your day supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and longevity. The conversation of the moment. The taste is delicious. It's suitable whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free. It contains less than one gram of sugar. No nonsense in here at all. It's a multivitamin that your body will actually absorb. If you are wanting to make an investment in your health and longevity, AG1 costs you less than $3 a day, far less expensive, and definitely less time-consuming than many different supplements. Reclaim your health, arm your immune system with convenient, delicious daily nutrition. And since you listen to the Practice You podcast, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of immune-boosting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is go to athleticgreens.com forward slash Elena. Once again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash E-L-E-N-A. Take ownership of your health, my listener. And thank you, Athletic Greens and AG1.